Ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome Greg Allman and his co-author, Alan Light. Thank you. Good evening. <laughs> Thank you all for coming out. Uh, been a long week for, uh, for our friend here working on taking this book door to door. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, you guys get, uh, get the last uh, up close and personal in New York City time with him here. Um, and I guess I want to start, I want to ask where, you know, a couple of blocks down the street from the Beacon, I'm sure we've got uh, mostly Beacon veterans out here in the crowd. Beaconites. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you, uh, you've had such a long relationship with New York, from the Fillmore through to the Beacon. What do you think it is that made that connection between this city and, and the band? I mean, it's not the most likely thing a bunch of Southern boys would come up here and make an impact for 40 years. Why do you think that that, that, that happened? Well, uh, when we started out, it was uh, Atlanta, I guess, was our biggest town. I mean, our biggest fan base. Uh, and then we met Bill Graham. And uh, there for a time, we were just going from Fillmore East to the Fillmore West, back and forth. And that was a lot of driving, man. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, Bill opened a lot of doors for us, man. He was, God bless him. Uh, as Keith Richards named him, the Sultan of Rock and Roll. But uh, he was, uh, he was the man. He really was. I wish I could tell you all about him, but it would take two, three nights. Well, you talk a lot about him in the book, but other than him giving you the forum and the right place, uh, do you think there's something about audiences in New York, something about, you know, people that are, that are here and around here that react oh. differently? Oh, yes, yes. Well, there's a real culture up here, you know? I mean, uh, the city's full of it, you know? Museums and uh, plays. Anything you want to see, you can see it here. Anything you want to buy, you can buy it here. So... Uh, it just uh, stands to reason that the biggest and best fan base would be here. And uh, these great old places that you have, I mean, like the Beacon, that was built in 1921, I think, or two. And uh, God, imagine how that place rocked in the roaring 20s, man. <laughs> so given if... If somebody's going to choose in very New York City and they're going to choose to come see you, that's because they want to be there. They got other choices. Oh, <laughs> this is it, and it's all it's all pushed up together, you know. And you can go see jazz one night, reggae another night, the pan flute. <laughs> pan flutes in the subway. We got that covered. <laughs> um, tell me about uh, tell me about first discovering the blues. Tell me about first hearing those 
Muddy Waters, Bobby Blue Bland Records, and, and how they came to you and what that did to you? Yes, the longest question. Uh, <laughs> um, well, the first concert I went to, uh, I was nine years old, and uh, my mother dropped us off, me and my brother, and picked us up, and uh, to give you an idea how, it, and we were way up here in the cheap seats, but uh, we saw what they call, what they used to call a review. And that's when they have, they have one band and they run a bunch of different uh, artists, you know, across the stage. And uh, this was headlined by Jackie Wilson. Uh, next up was uh, Otis Redding. I think he was number two. He took it. <laughs> and before them, B.B. Uh, King and uh, he had this guy in his band he's the only other one that, that brought his band with him and uh, he still had the three horn players and uh, he had this guy sitting behind this big hunk of furniture man <laughs> and he had a big red he had peroxided it and it turned flame and red this big pompadour set up on his head like this, like kind of like James Brown used to wear. And, uh, uh, man, I thought, what in the world is that piece of furniture? And what is that sound coming out of it? Don't care much for the hairdo. <laughs> but, uh, oh, they just, man, they took me apart. I mean, it changed my whole life, whole lifestyle. It confirmed a lot of things for me. You can make a living without putting on a tie. <laughs> you can do it, actually. <laughs> year after year after year, still can do it. <laughs> yeah. So when did, you, when did you figure out what that crazy instrument was and, and uh, start, to, start to take to it yourself? I, uh, my mother was a CPA. And she worked at this real exclusive restaurant in, uh, in Daytona Beach. The family now had moved to Daytona Beach. Anyway, she worked at this, at this place and in the bar, they had this guy that came in and played at night. He had a drum machine and he had his ham in there and he had a Steinway. And uh, I'd go to pick her up after school, right? And I'd tiptoe up there, <laughs> see if the keys were laying around anywhere, you know. And sometimes he wouldn't even lock it. And uh, the first thing I learned about a Hammond is how to crank it up. Because <laughs> you do, you have to crank them up. You hit one button, and you let it get to this highest RPMs, and you hit another one. Because it's got a generator in it. <clears throat> And uh, I own six of them now. And uh, we, we keep trading the guts out. You know, the, all, all the guts fit all different organs. And I've got a technician that can change one out, just bam. So, temperamental machines. Yeah. Well, one stays in the Hall of Fame in, uh, in Cleveland. 
and one stays at the Atlanta Hall of Fame, and uh, I keep four on the road, two with the brothers and two with my band. Because if one of them, uh, I don't know if you've ever looked in the back of one of them, but it's before they had printed circuits even. They're just loose wires. The only difference is they're all a different color and you have to trace every one of them down. It is Chinese arithmetic in the back of one of those. So you take two. Chances are you'll get through the whole night. <laughs> so one thing that, uh, you know, that, that, that you talk about in the book that's a little surprising is uh, you certainly did not take naturally to start singing. You, uh, you were, I don't want to say, kind of pushed into that chair, but it was sort of a defensive move to uh, get behind the microphone. Tell me about uh, what, what it was that drove you to start singing and, then, and where, it, where it took off, where it took in from there. Well, uh, obviously my brother quit school, so he stayed home and played all day. He just passed me like I was standing still. He was a real natural. And uh, see, when it's in the beginning, <laughs> I uh, I was a guitar player. My brother was a singer. My brother could not sing, <laughs> and I could not play, you know, contemporary type type blues on electric guitar. And and truthfully, didn't want to. And. Uh, <clears throat> so that switched over and I actually have a tape of it nobody will ever nobody will ever hear of this tape <laughs> of the early early efforts at, oh, at singing yes yes we were playing this club called the Martinique there in Daytona Beach and uh, we were working somewhere else so we'd come to the Martinique and we'd rehearse in the afternoon and this is a this is a recording of that. Oh man, it sounds like James Brown with no lips. Uh, from Arkansas, trying to sing like Bill Medley. I don't. It was just terrible. So how did you? So how did you then? How do you learn to do it? How did you how do you get from that <laughs> and from not being inclined? Practice. I went everywhere. I listened to every everybody sing. I took every bit of advice I could find or I could dig out of anybody. And I went and watched different people. Uh, you know, we didn't have the all the great stuff to to uh, the different means to watch videos and just push a button and hear whatever you want. Right. <laughs> well, it's probably just just as well. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I'd have stuck with it long if it, if it had been too easy. You know, things that are too easy are just they're kind of boring. <laughs> And uh, so, 
I just kept listening and kept listening, kept trying. And uh, only, only in about the last 10 years have I finally found that, that I have the kind of voice that uh, if you hear it, you can, you can tell it's me. Well, I mean, I just, I'm, I'm the last to know, right? <laughs> yeah, I think everybody else figured, if anybody else got to that a couple, couple decades ago, maybe somewhere in there. Well. But like you said, otherwise it'd be boring if you weren't still having to exactly. push yourself, right? So probably my favorite thing in the book, certainly my favorite thing to hear you talk about is the, is the early days of the of the Allman Brothers Band first coming together and what that discovery and what that exploration of those first days was like. Tell Man. me about the, the, the first getting everybody together. Well, we all <clears throat> first got in the same room together on March 26, 1969 in uh, let me see, it's a suburb of Jacksonville, and it's called, uh, I never can remember. They have a big cemetery named of the same name up in uh, D.C. It's for the soldiers. Arlington? Arlington. Arlington, Florida. That's where we uh, all got together in the same room. I got, I hitchhiked and got a rad all the way from the San Bernardino freeway to the front door. And my brother, and the guy that gave me a ride was a bass player. And all the way there, man, he, hey man, can I get a job? Can I, I said, whoa. <laughs> Thank you for the ride, but get off of it. I said, you know, I don't know if I got a job, you know. And uh, we got there, and my brother said, thanks for bringing my little brother home. Blam! <laughs> that was him, man. End of that. I said, you know, you could, at least, you could at least ask the guy if he wants some water or something. You, know? <laughs> you had work to do, though. Yeah. <laughs> and I went in there, and there's these people staring at me. And I look over, and I see two sets of drums. Oh. I thought, man, there's only one outcome to that. It's a train wreck, you know. <laughs> sure enough, them boys played together just fine. <laughs> and uh, then came, uh, well, what you got written? <laughs> okay. So I had 22 songs with me. Well, to my name, really. And uh, I'd play one, and they, yeah, what else you got, man? <laughs> and uh, I'd play them the other one. And finally, after about four or five of those, I hit them with dreams. And uh, only song I've ever written on a Hammond, because this place I was staying in Hollywood. It was this band and these guys that I knew from 
they were from Alabama, and uh, they were going off on some kind of trip and asked me if I'd watch their house for them. So they had a Hammond in their band. <laughs> so I sat down on it and wrote Dreams, and I had that, and I had It's Not My Cross to Bear. And uh, the rest of them, maybe they've come out in other songs. I don't know. <laughs> and so what happened? What happened in that room when you, you know, when you dropped dreams on them? Oh, well, they learned it, bang, and just like you hear it today. And uh, I thought, man, this, this is going to be a hell of a band. They learned it so fast, and they already have developed such communication. I thought, man, this, this could be all right. <laughs> so I'm, I'm always so interested in that, in band chemistry. And I think you say in the book, you know, you could have a bunch of great players, but if it's not the right drummer, then they're all working as truck drivers or delivering the mail or something. Yeah. If, it, if all the parts don't go together right. What do you think it was, was and is in the, in the blend of those players that locked in like that? I mean, it's not a, it's not a totally logical lineup, like you said. Two drummers, like no, you said, two, two lead guitar players. Right. What, what was it that everybody could key in on together? Well, uh, we both had, I mean, we all had enthusiasm. Oh, God. We all had the passion. And, you know, you can tell when somebody's got it. You know, you can look in their eye. When they're, uh, you can tell when they eat, sleep, drink music. And, uh, Oh, we just, uh, in the next week, I probably wrote most of the first record. Most Weapon Post and Black Hearted Woman. And uh, I forget up what else was on there. <laughs> tell the, because I love the story, tell the uh, writing Whipping Post on the uh, ironing board story. <laughs> you people have a book. <laughs> It's all in the book. <laughs> if you haven't read it, you, you think of me when you get to that part, because I like that story. Um, so tell us some, and I know, again, this is stuff that, that's featured on the, on the e-book stuff, um, is, is, a, is a close look at the big house, um, at the house in Macon. Tell me, you know, describe that, that time, because it just sounds so magical when you talk about it. Well, this, when we, uh, we were in Jacksonville, like I told you, when, when, we, when I finally got there, I was, the, I was the last to get there. Some say, uh, well, never mind. <laughs> Mixed feelings about that. <laughs> Anyhow, um, this guy named Walden was real interested in my brother. Now he hears that he has a band. He went over and checked him out when he was working at uh, Muscle Shoals Sound in, in uh, Alabama. It's in L.A., Lower Alabama. <laughs> and uh, so uh, 
we were to come to Macon, Georgia. They had set up a place for us and uh, a studio was being built. And uh, we had told them, we, they asked us if we had enough, enough songs for a record. We said, yeah. And, uh, and we had two or three songs that are longer than the record. <laughs> Play out both sides. And really? <laughs> anyway, uh, I don't think we had come to the Mountain Jam yet. We had some jams, though. A lot of stuff that we played in the beginning, you know, it's just poof. It's just gone. <laughs> Anyhow, we made the big exodus to uh, Macon, Georgia. And I thought, God, of all places to be, you know, you could tell on the, by looking at the map, it's in the middle of the state. Therefore, it's got to be the hottest city in Georgia. And it was. It was. <laughs> Twice over it was. But uh, we had a place to go and play. We had a place to eat. We had enough to eat. Uh, we had a place to sleep. And uh, man, I was in paradise. <laughs> I mean, it was just eating, breathing, and sleeping music. You got it. And as well, we, you know, shot some dice here and there. <laughs> <laughs> but all, but the thing that's so, that comes across so much in the book is, I mean, this was really everybody together. Right. Then, you know, for that for that time, there was the making music together, and there was the uh, doing all the rest of of living together, and being in the house, and playing the games, and running around, and all that. Cork ball. Cork ball. We, we invented this. You take a pool cue, <laughs> and on the business end, well, on the tip. You cut about that much off. So you use the rest of it. And uh, that's your bat. You wrap, you wrap tape around the smaller end. That's your bat. Then you take, you go to the hardware store and you buy one of those, uh, those big tapered corks. And it like goes in a thermos. All right. And on the smaller end, you stick a penny on there, heads up, of course. And then you wrap it all the way around, just mummify it with, with some adhesive tape. And uh, when you pitch it, you pitch it like this. You hold it long ways in your hand, you pitch it like that, so it's spinning. You know, the odds of you hitting it right on the penny are like, lottery odds you know <laughs> and uh but if you do that sucker's in the next county let me tell you <laughs> and then you have you have to have three coat hangers the first one is first base it's a musician's game you don't run <laughs> how can you keep up that lovely physique <laughs> 
can't move too far from that. <laughs> and uh, so, and you got second, third, and home, right? And you have some pretty lady over here with a clipboard, and she's keeping score, keeping score. of who's on first and <laughs> what's on second. You still start that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's lots of fun, man. You can play all day long. And uh, we used to play all, all the time. Hell, we hadn't played a game of cork ball in 30 years. May still have, you know, I got to keep that swing up. Got to keep, hey, the, no keep your style. That's right. <laughs> so. It goes on, you know, you go through, you lose band members, people come, go, you replace, some of this works, some of this doesn't. Um, why do you, you know, why does it keep coming back around? What is it that was so important to keep the Allman Brothers Band at that functioning? First, that first thing that happened on that first day, that's what we were looking for again. And we knew we had it within us. And uh, it was just a matter of finding, I mean, let's face it, the bass is not only the backbone, but the skeletal form of the song. And uh, I mean, especially if it's a, you know, one makes you want to stand up and shake your booty. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> so, you once you knew, once you once you knew that was in you, once you saw what everybody was capable of, that's what you still oh, yeah. keep trying to. Yeah, and we uh, we held auditions. God. No matter who you are, I believe you have to audition all your life. <laughs> Still auditioning the, to this day. Let me see. When's the last audition I did? <laughs> uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't know. It feels like that all the time. It does. <laughs> it really does. Like, uh, well, could you come in here and prove yourself? <laughs> Got the proof yet. All right, they're giving me the signal. We're going to take questions from you guys. So over here, and then I'll come back. Yeah, to you. Hi, Gregory. Gregory, um, how do you do? How are you doing, sir? I guess it's, it's really an awesome thing right now to see you like this close instead of being at the beacon and all that. Where <laughs> you're trying to like look through everybody, but uh, I just wanted to ask you: you were having a rough time at Wani with the two shows in April. How do you feel now? I feel real good. That, Real good. Um, I've been reading your book now for about 10 days, and I, of course I started the, at the back part because I wanted to see what was going on from 2000 until now. And you said after the operation of the transplant that you had three more operations. I did. And, and I was just, wow, I, I really got to be amazed that you, you, you came through and you're doing really well now, but... Um, some of those operations that they talked that you talk about in the book about the, the blood in your lungs and all that, 
Yeah. Wow. When you said you, you felt like you were drowning in your own blood, and it was really frightening. That, that part of the book really, really scared me when I was reading that. And, uh, and of course, all the other stuff too, but, you know, but that part really got to me. So I just wanted to see that, to ask you how you're feeling today, because everybody's looking forward to the summer shows with Santana and Leonard Skinner, and we want to be there. <laughs> I'm ready, dude. Great, thank you. All right. In the back, yep. Hi. Who does your tats, and do you have a favorite? <laughs> a favorite? <laughs> Let me see. <laughs> no, I don't have a favorite. Um, this, this last one was uh, done by a guy by the name of Paul Booth. He's up here on the river. He's, uh, <laughs> it's a pretty scary place. It's called <laughs> Last Rites. <laughs> it's also an Stay, <laughs> Stay out of a place called Last Rites. I don't know about that. Let me come back up here. He's good, Mike though. up here. Uh, oh, is it on? Yep. Uh, thank you first for being here. I really appreciate it. Um, I read your book first. Then I listened to it on audio. And I got to ask you one part of a story that you didn't quite finish, and I'm dying to know how it turned out. When you guys were in your garage for the first, I guess, couple of months rehearsing, and your mom came in, and I guess, I won't say the whole story because I'm going to give it away, but she started jammo and had a total sh meltdown on you and couldn't understand what this N-word was doing in your house. Remember that? She, yes. Right, okay. Well, I got to know, what the hell happened? I mean, did she come and tan your hide after that? Did she talk to you? I mean, what was the outcome? I mean, back then at that time, definitely an interracial band was way ahead of its time. And did you realize that or just thought, hell, I'm just having a good time playing music? I said, quote, Mama, that ain't no nigger, that's Floyd. <laughs> Floyd, <laughs> thank you. Today, Floyd takes, if she has a doctor's appointment, Floyd takes her. Uh, there was something I called him about the other day. I'm, I'm doing this special little thing for my mother, for Mother's Day, and I need his help. And he's no problem. He's, uh, he's in my solo band still. Well, he's, he's the guy that uh, pretty much taught me how to sing. <laughs> so he was a singer in the, in the first band we had. There you go. In the blue here. It's a real pleasure to meet you. I think, you know, the first time I met you, I was 18 years old. I don't know if you remember back at the Deep Hollow Ranch in the Montauk concert with Paul Simon uh, about 20 years ago. I actually have a picture in my apartment of, uh, of you and I, but I wanted to ask you, I've probably been to a couple dozen concerts at the Beacon, and you generally have a lot of special guests that play with you. Who has been uh, you know, the best uh, you know, uh, performer that you, you've ever personally played with, and especially from the younger generation? I know you recently played with Grace Potter and people like that. Who have you enjoyed with playing the most? Ziggy Marley, man. <laughs> I mean, you, you talk in the, in the book about what it meant when Clapton came and, and played with you at the Beacon. Oh, man, he is, he is so strong. I mean, to... Uh, 
I mean, I, I studied him as he played, you know. And the whole rest of the band, except for the bass and drums, we could have just laid out. That guy plays so full. And, uh, I mean, he gets it all covered, you know. Might not even need the bass. Might not even need the drums, either. He is... Uh, he is one of the most well-rounded, no, he's the most well-rounded guitar player uh, of our time. Folks, and well, uh, my brother, my brother greatly admired him. They, I was down there when they cut the Layla record. I, I watched. And then afterwards, the Allman Brothers and Derek and the Dominoes joined up and uh we've still got it in the can somewhere <laughs> but we just jammed we just turned on the machine and started playing maybe on the aisle yeah uh first and foremost this may sound a bit odd but i've never done drugs in my life but the first time i heard you guys do was was with the reed it was put me in a different stratosphere uh, which made me wonder all these years who was elizabeth reed who was Elizabeth Reed? Well, she, um, I don't know. She died a long, long time ago, and she is in Rose Hill Cemetery, which we used to go, which is on the, uh, uh, I don't know, it's by the river there in Macon, Georgia. It's where my brother's buried, and Mr. Oakley. And uh, um, we used to go down there and write songs amongst other, other things. <laughs> anyway, uh, one of the guys in the band uh, was uh, down there <laughs> and <laughs> kind of having his way with this, this lady and uh, this friend of his. And uh, when it was over with, uh, he looked up and he said, in memory of Elizabeth Reed. And uh, it was a minim obviously it was a, a very memorable experience. Um, so, because he went to his house and wrote the song. <laughs> commemorated, for, commemorated for all time, right? <laughs> and the last time we played in Macon, one of her offspring, we on down came and introduced themselves. <laughs> like my great-great-grandmother was Elizabeth Reed, and we, we always said, <laughs> She read all about these, the other interviews talking about Elizabeth Reed. <laughs> as long as she took it the right, took it as a you tribute. Know, there's no privacy anywhere. <laughs> all right. Thank you all for coming out, and mostly, thank you, Greg Allman. <laughs>